Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash podcast and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash podcast. We're going to expand our weekly video segment to take you into the back shelves of your local video store. Back where it says horror videos and where kids are devouring some awful films that we call the video nasties. Are you freebasing inquiring minds want to know? I have to break free from this culture of mechanical reproductions and the thick incrustations dying on the surface. What the prime time gets? Mom the new Fletch. The pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. As for our deaths, Immortal. We have such sights to show you. We've got to return some video. Hello, horror hounds. Welcome to the It Slays podcast. This is your humble host, Exilia. It's Clue Gallagher's glasses, Rowan. It's Coach Snyder's rank, sweaty Adidas t-shirt, Mike. And we're back with another episode this week. Rowan, I'll let you introduce... <laughs> introduce the pick since it's yours yes uh so this is we should mention it's our grand finale of pride month you would steal the grand finale i have to do it extravagant there is no question to answer because we have a lot to cover i know we have a lot to talk about with this pick before i announce it let's say uh This is a monumental pick for us. You know, we shouted out what we were going to review in our Heavenly Creatures one. Tonight, we are talking about the possibly gayest horror film of all time. Iconic queer horror film. Masterpiece. And also, the first time we've reviewed a second film in a series. That's not true. We did Witchboard 2. But we didn't we do didn't the first We didn't do Witchboard one. 1. That's right. But we did do the second But I'm saying it's the, the first time in order we've done Yeah, the we've already done part one and now we're doing part two. Yeah, stop, <laughs> stop ruining our fun, Exilia. Oh, Jeez. Okay. Sorry, that's what I'm here for. And the pick for this evening is Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge. Now, Rowan, you also picked a second movie to review. Because <laughs> I'm a cheater that. like Exilia. <laughs> so we will later on in this episode be talking about the highly anticipated documentary that got released like last week, the week before last of recording this. And that is called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Mark Patton put it out. Uh, and it's just about his experience. We're going to talk about it once we talk about this amazing, iconic film. I don't even want to let these two talk. I don't care how they're doing. I need to get into talking about this. Girl, this is your movie. This is your episode. Just That's right. take, if you take don't th- the reins and run. If you don't think today's episode's about me, well, it is. That it's is it's not quote. Freddy's Revenge. It's Rowan's Revenge. <laughs> That's right. A direct quote taken from My My Super Super Sweet Sweet 16. So let's just get into the trailer and the bio. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. 
is not patient. Kill for me. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! 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 But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside of me. Kruger is back on Elm Street. Get out of here, Lisa! Jesse, fight him! Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You are all my children now. Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> Since this is your pick, why don't you read out the bio? Okay, so the IMDb bio is... A teenage boy is haunted in his dreams by deceased child murderer Freddy Krueger, who is out to possess him in order to continue his reign of terror in the real world. And tap that ass. It doesn't say Into that. a drawer. Where he dances. Shout out to that song. Oh, we will, we will insert that song. <laughs> We've been listening to it in my car. I don't have a radio in my car because it's broken, so I just listen to my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> the most sad story ever told. We're, I'm getting a new... I know new to you now. that was sad, but to most people that hear this, it's probably like, that's what I do anyway. <laughs> I have Bluetooth. I just hook my phone up and listen to. No, music. no, no. We're, no, we're missing the point. I mean, on like, this I story. just listen to my phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, so you just had it played on, on your Spotify. dashboard. Okay. Yeah, in my cup holder. I was gonna say my friend used to have um, a travel cup in his car and would put his phone in the travel cup so that it would echo. Yeah, that's a great idea. I know, right? We did order a uh, like radio in for me. So let's talk about our first time experiences with this film uh mike why don't we start with you okay well um as we may remember from the last time we talked about nightmare on elm street i started watching them uh from video stores when i was very very hideously disgustingly young and my parents at that point just didn't give a shit what i was doing as long as i was out of their hair because i was this fucking super extra child <laughs> shocker <laughs> I never could have guessed. No, I, I was, I'm extra as an adult. I was super extra as a child. Anyway, so I would just watch these fucking movies, and I don't know what age I was. I was dis, I was probably in early double digits when I first watched it. And did I understand it? Hell no. Did I love it? Fuck to the S. <laughs> and it was just instantly. I never understood why, as I grew up. <laughs> and read more about it that everybody seemed to hate this movie and I was like this is really cool like this was like I get that it was not you know the same as the other ones because it didn't have the like continuing characters and stuff but I was like why does everybody hate this <laughs> and stupid fucking naive young me <laughs> did not understand that everybody hated this because it was clearly a queer horror film anyway on to you Ro yeah like you Mike I can't even really remember the first time I saw this, but I would have been very, very young. Like, I remember watching all these, renting them from video stores, 
Uh, I never have, like, a clear memory of not liking this one compared to the others. I do remember, like, understanding that a lot of people didn't like this one. I just knew it was kind of the least favorite of the series. Uh, and then as I got older and understood it more for all the reasons that I'm sure we're going to get into and talk about. I love it, and this is my favorite entry of the series. So, uh, yeah, that was my first time experiences. How about you, Exilia? Well, when Rowan and I were growing up, we would, like, go to his house and he had a DVD player and TV in his room, which, like, doesn't seem that spectacular, but this was, like, almost 20 years ago, so it was pretty sweet. And, um, we used to, like, watch- Okay, so Rowan likes movies. I don't know if that's, like, clear or not, <laughs> Rowan but... likes movies. Shocker. <laughs> so, we used to, like, just sleep and watch movies. That's, like, all we did, pretty much. It's true. And, um, so he made me watch, like, every single Nightmare on Elm Street movie in a row. This is also It might have been, like, over a couple days, but I can't remember. Anyways, that's where I saw this movie. I remember seeing this one and Dream Warriors. Those were like really the only two I really remember. But this one, I remember being my favorite and really only because Freddy like drives the bus off a cliff. (laughs) That's like the only thing I remembered from this movie. It was the only thing you're going to relate to. A school bus. (laughs) A school bus. Pretty much. I mean, I did take a bus to school. Um, You're like rich people with pools? No, girl. But school bus? Yeah. <laughs> My parents weren't rich, but they have a pool. <laughs> okay, first of all, fuck you and your goddamn pool privilege, bitch. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I only lived at the house for a couple years. Anyways, I digress. Yeah, so that was my experience. I had no awareness. Honestly, I don't even I don't even remember anything about this movie, like I said, besides the bus driving off the cliff. And I had no awareness that it was considered like a queer horror movie and I had no awareness that people didn't like this movie I just remember seeing it we before we get into it we have to get into Exilia's favorite part of the program so we cut out the question but we kept this part where we well we got to talk about who's in it we also didn't mention this uh came out in 1985 uh just two years shy of the best year ever uh he actually means four years sorry so the film uh is directed by Jack Shoulder. I wouldn't necessarily say like an iconic director. He's only really done a couple things in the horror uh, scene in terms of directing. He did direct Alone in the Dark. I was going to say Alone in the Dark is really an underrated classic slasher. Yeah. uh, He also did The Hidden and Wishmaster 2. Uh, And that's pretty much his only notables. I know he edited a lot of movies before and after he became a director. He was more well known for editing movies. But I was lazy and I didn't look up what he edited because I didn't really care that much. I mean, who cares about what somebody edited? Exactly. Let's get into, uh, you know, the keynote actors in this film. Uh, So we will start with the one, the only, Marshall Bell. He plays Coach Snyder. Oh, we stand Coach Snyder. Oh, yes, we do. That leather vest is everything. Mm, Yep. Everything. I also like in some very, like a very big filmography of movies. I'm like, holy shit, yeah, he was in that. So, a couple things I'd written down he was in Stand By Me, he was in Twins, 
He was in Total Recall, which I think is what I remember him most from. Also, fucking, like, weirdly in 2020, a, like, forgotten classic. Yeah. Total Recall is so fucking good. I love Total Recall. I never saw the remake. I'm sure it was terrible. Uh, he was also in Dick Tracy, Starship Troopers, and Capote. So, yeah, like... Ooh, he's really some, rocking like, Oscar contender, contenders in there. Yeah, exactly. Next up, uh, we have Robert Rustler. He plays, uh... Grady in this, Mr. Ron Grady. I didn't even know his first name was Ron. Do they call him Ron in this movie? They do. Um, when they sit down at the table with him in the cafeteria, um, Carrie, which is Lisa's friend, says to him, like, hey, Ron, or something like that. It sounds kind of like Ryan. Maybe she said Ryan. But... Is he the friend with the black hair? Yes. Okay. He's the boyfriend. How dare you? How dare you? Grady. It's Grady. Ron Grady. Couple notables he was in. Uh, probably most notable Two, Weird by the Science. Way, I was going to say three. He's been in three of my favorite movies ever. Well, let's see. I only wrote down a couple. I had Weird Science, Vamp. Vamp. And this. Weird Science, Vamp, and Freddy's Revenge. Three of the best movies ever made. Boom. Period. Done. I also had down. He was in uh, Sometimes They Come Back as well. A little... Another horror appearance. Okay, well, yes. Minor Stephen King adaptation. We love it. And next, we have the lovely Kim Myers. Oh, Kim Myers, lover. Love Kim Plays Myers. Lisa. Also, like, kind of let down when I look at the filmography. Like, not really anything, like, crazy notable. The only thing that stuck out at me is she was in Hellraiser Bloodline. So you go, girl. Working those bad, you know, sequels to Hellraiser. Does anybody else think she kind of looks like a young Meryl Streep? Oh, 100%. She is like a brunette Meryl Streep, if there ever was one. And frankly, yeah, she really I does think she's I think underrated. I think she is quite a good actress in this movie. Oh, yeah, I think she's fantastic in this. I think she's like Meryl Streep with sick fucking bangs. She is bangs Streep. Not everybody can pull up. Kim Myers, you are Bang Streep. That is what we're calling you. Next up, I had written the always iconic Clue Gallagher. I mean, his filmography is massive. Uh, Some notables I wrote down was uh, The Initiation. Obviously, I think probably one of his most iconic roles was... The Return of the Living Dead. Uh, He was in Feast 1, 2, and 3, which are like some personal favorites of mine. He was in Piranha 3DD, or I guess 3DD. Oh my god, come on. (laughs) And also, uh, just kind of, uh, you know, to let you know he means business, also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Shout out to... uh, Making it in the Tarantino film. And the last two, we'll go with Robert England first. I mean, does he need an introduction? An iconic horror actor. He plays Freddy, so he's in all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. Uh, 976 Evil, Chud 2, Wishmaster, Strangeland, uh, Idle Hands... Or uh, if you like your 80s television, The Star of V, which is a great TV show. Oh, V is so underrated. Yeah, amazing. Which he actually, like, did right before he took the role of Freddy. Hashtag uh, get V on Netflix challenge. Oh, that would be amazing. I would Mm. definitely watch that. Last but not least, 
the iconic scream queen that this movie produced, Mr. Mark Patton, who plays Jesse Walsh. And all I have down for his filmography is This Is All You Need is Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Truly, I will say this one film, he goes through more hairstyles in this one 90-minute film than Meryl Streep went through in the first five years of her fucking career. That's all I'm saying. Meryl Streep, step it up to Mark Patton's level challenge. (laughs) The challenge has been set. Mm -hmm. I'm throwing down the fucking gauntlet, bitch. Go back in your filmography and show me how many fucking aerosols you had by the time Mark Patton came out in this movie. You And you better respond. Jeez. Oh, I am waiting. Uh, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Meryl, this is Mike. I'm here. I'm waiting for your response. My DMs are open. My mailbox is open. I'm here. I'm waiting for you. I love you. Respond to me. <laughs> but don't respond unless you got hairstyles lined up. Oh, listen. If bitch just responds, no. We need, I need like, listen, she needs to argue with me. I want a debate. I need discourse. I need discussion. I need argument. All right, let's get into this. We know what's coming up first. Our favorite scene. Exilia, let's start with you. I mean, needless to say, the scene where Jesse is dancing to the song Touch Me. Obviously the best scene. I also have written down here when the eyeball is looking through Jesse's mouth. Now I can't quite remember what that scene was, so I don't really know if it was my favorite. It's, it's, but I s- no, it's the scene when he's in Gray's bedroom. Yeah, I yeah. seem to think at the time though it was one of my favorites, so I'll mention that too. But you're yeah, you're totally on the right track with the touch me dancing. Yeah. That's like obviously the best part of the movie. I was gonna Besides say- the bus going off a cliff. <laughs> I feel like we can all agree that is a favorite iconic scene from everybody. Can we talk about that song first, though? Like, it's an iconic song. Um, And I just want to shout out one of my favorite musicians who is still very active and putting out brilliant music today. And it's Bright Light, Bright Light. He did an EP called Cinematography, and it was 
songs from his childhood that were featured in movies and he covered them and touch me is one oh, of that's them. cool yeah it was a really, really it was cool. a really cool he's like a kind of um electronic pop producer and he's really like versatile and like super talented and his twitter by the way like follow him on twitter he's really funny he twitch streams um dj sets from his living room right now where we're mostly like kind of on lockdown and kind of stuck at home um but yeah he did a really cool version of touch me based on the fact that it was in this movie. And it's a really, really, really good version of this song. This is where you belong. Don't make me wait too long. This is where you belong. Don't make me wait too liked Jesse's dance scene, um, I highly recommend checking out Bright Light, Bright Light's cover of Touch Me because it's um, superb. It's really good. It's on like um, Apple Music and Spotify. So go check it out and follow Bright Light X2 on Twitter. <laughs> I'm looking the person up right now. So while Exilia looks the person up right now, Mike, why don't you hit us with your favorite scene? Oh my God. Okay. So first of all, X's favorite scene is also one of mine. But this this is a movie that, like, the narrative as a whole, if I'm being brutally honest, obviously we realize this. It's just kind of nonsense. It's patched together nonsense. Um, So it's, it's really set pieces. And the set pieces are all actually very strong. So that is one set piece that I quite liked. But I will not choose that. I am going to choose the fucking, I think, the emotional apex of the movie. And that is Jesse's defection from the party when his fucking heterosexual deliance goes limp, shall we say. And he fucking takes off from the cabana and goes to visit his boy Grady in his bedroom and gets Grady killed. Okay, one of the questions... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I think that's the emotional height of the movie. Like, to me... Even before I understood, when I was watching it when I was, like, a tween, I I didn't understand the subtext, but that was the most emotionally disturbing scene to me, right? Like, Why didn't Grady go to the party? Grady was grounded, girl. He said he pushed his grandmother down the stairs, and you know it was more like, I don't know, they walked in and I'm jerking off or something. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I missed that part. (laughs) But he he did say that the reason he wasn't going, there was, trust me, they did set it up. He did say specifically in the cafe, that he wasn't going to the party because he was grounded. Okay, I obviously, that which gives Jesse an excuse to run away from the party and go hang out with his boyfriend. Yeah, that's such a good. Who, by See, the this way, is, the problem. is wearing iconic '80s camouflage uh, gym shorts. The likes of which, by the way, um, FYI, were copied by Lady Gaga in her recent merchandising campaign for the brilliant <laughs> single Sour Candy with My Girls Blackpink. And you could buy Sour Candy 80s gym shorts <laughs> that are literally exactly what Grady's wearing in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> nice. You guys are just picking out yeah, all the good scenes because obviously Jesse dancing amazing the Grady the whole Grady scene especially once you know once we got older and 
you know, understood the, uh, the subtext or, you know. Yes. Okay. And can we, can we, can we throw this out here? I have to say this right now, because before we get into the, any discussion of the, the documentary, when Robert Rusler says, like, obviously I understood the whole subtext of this movie, you can tell. I think the reason why that scene is so emotionally powerful even if you're like a youngster watching it and don't kind of understand what's going on is because it's very 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 obvious when you rewatch the movie after you know that Robert Rusler understood the subtext of the movie and he said like that's how I acted it like he understands the subtext of the scene which I think gives it that punch you know what I mean like yeah when and I like I said I fucking love Kim Myers it's so much like like, I stan her. I have stanned Kim Myers since I was, like, a fucking 12-year-old that watched this movie for the first time and didn't understand it. I love her. Like, I think she's iconic. But, like, he was the emotional punch of this movie. Like, honestly, I feel like maybe you guys can argue with me. I feel like the emotional linchpin of this movie was his character. Because he has that, like, kind of standard, I mean, it is a trope, in, especially in horror, to, like, have somebody move from, like, oh, they're the annoying kind of antagonist to they're actually, like, the person that the that the protagonist depends on. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But he became very quickly more than that and became, you know, obviously, as we say, the coded, like, boyfriend. And he really understood. And when you watch, like, when I rewatch this after watching, I mean, I've seen this a bajillion times over the years, even after I realized it was clearly like a queer horror movie you know and we'd watch it and like have a few drinks and kind of laugh at it and like go this is like kind of brilliant but when i watched the the documentary and he like on numerous occasions said i totally understood what this movie was and that's how i acted it and then when i rewatched it after that and was like holy shit like he really gets it because he was one of the only people in this movie that like nailed the kind of emotional gravitas. And that's why his, that's why I think his kill scene is like probably one of the best in the whole Nightmare on Elm Street series. I'm just going to throw that out there. I probably, I probably wouldn't argue with you on that. Um, and I just think he's like actually a really good actor. Like, you know, I think he, he, does, he does a get, great job on yeah. this. And I was going to say too, and we're, we'll talk about it more as we get into it. Like I keep saying subtext. But I feel like once you reach a certain age, like, I don't think there's anything subtle It's not subtext. It. It's, it's text. Like, it's, it's subtext if you're kind of, like, maybe younger and don't understand. But, like, I don't know. I feel like anybody that watches this after they're 15 years old probably realizes that it's text and not subtext. I wonder if it really is an age thing. Yeah, of course, if you're, like, a little kid, you're not going to understand. But I wonder if it's, like, a generational thing. Do you think, like... Well, I mean, and we're growing up today. Yeah. Yeah, Like, do you think that kids growing up today are like young teenagers growing up today, like get it because they're more exposed that it's like a lot more acceptable than when we were absolutely. And like growing up, you know, now you have people who like, you know, come out at like super early ages and are like, Mm -hmm. you know, realize that, you know, like they transition at early ages and stuff like that. So I feel like maybe it is a more generational thing. Yeah. Like Like somebody who watched this at 12 now in 2020 would probably immediately understand because they're already Mm. way more woke than we are. (laughs) 
you know? This is true. This is very yeah, true. Yeah, like... And media literate, too. Like, I mean, not only were we not as woke, obviously, but we were not, like, our media literacy, I think, was mostly self-taught. Like, we yeah. taught ourselves how to watch movies and how to read books, you know, because we didn't... It's not really something that was, like, taught to us in school as such. Like, yeah. you kind of got a bit of it, but it wasn't, like... Like, I feel like my... Personally, my just voracious devouring of movies and TV shows is the only reason that I have any kind of media literacy. Yeah, because they, back when we were growing up, like, they didn't really talk about, like, digital media at school, really. Oh, yeah, it was like, let's dissect Shakespeare, and that's, um, yeah, this is your, this is your literacy right here. Also, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, like, you might have gotten a bare butt when you watched Romeo and Juliet in class, and that's about it. (laughs) I also like anybody who watches or watches anybody who listens to this podcast know that Roan and I are from like a fairly rural place in Atlanta, Canada, which we live in it again. And like I was almost 18. I was literally like two months away from being 18 years old when I met like the first openly LGBTQ person in my life. 18. Like that's super old. I think that's that wouldn't generally happen today. Yeah. It definitely definitely wouldn't happen. <laughs> Before we get yeah, well, too I mean, deep like, into But when you look at it, it's like like when you look at it statistically, you met people you just didn't know, <laughs> right? Because it was No, wasn't that's why like, I said openly. Yeah, yeah, openly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I think that's why this is sort of the movie that kind of keeps giving because I think every generation that discovers it takes something else from it. The generation that was sort of of age when it came out took one thing from it. The generation in like the early 90s took something from it. Our generation took something from it. The ones after that when you kind of like had a bit more like open discussion about like, you know, like like I said, kind of queer sexuality and stuff like that takes it from it. Somebody that watches it in 2020 20 is going to take something completely different from it but like it you hate to say it and everybody hates it and it has like a horrifically low um rating on like imdb and stuff but like this movie keeps giving it keeps giving there is so many fucking like layers to it that every i think i feel like every generation has something to take from it whether it's like positive or negative maybe i'm wrong i think yeah i i agree because i think because of like the content and because like as time goes on we like become more socially progressive in that way that yeah like every generation does have a different perspective just because every generation has a different perspective on queerness like so every generation would have a different perspective on the movie before we get too deep into guys I want to uh, say my favorite scenes oh my god I didn't say his favorite scene yet it's okay guys it's okay oh my god I'm so sorry listen but like you said, we have so much to say about So this much movie. to say about There's it. So I agree much with to this. Say about this movie. I'm sorry. Like I said, I agree with both of you. Those are all some of my favorite scenes. <laughs> I also like everything with Mr. Walsh. Mr. Walsh he kills it. Clue kills it in this movie. Is like and he's really underrated. He is he is a solid fucking voice in this movie. Like as the kind of comedy relief to it, but like plays it just deadpan straight. Like he does such a good job. I just really like all the scenes with him. Like with the whole family interaction. Like I love the scene where the bird explodes and you know he's just like, oh, it must be a gas line. <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, put cherry bombs in the bird. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so funny though because like you bring that up because in the first Nightmare on Elm Street you also had the parents played by a couple of like kind of old pros who yeah, you know exactly. were like really established like character actors but they played it like it was so deadly I mean the first movie was so serious but in this one I feel like the parents are also played by old pros, but they're, like, kind of hamming it up a bit. And I kind of feel like it's funny that you point that out, because he really is, like, the comic relief of this movie. If there is such a thing as comic relief in Freddy's Revenge, it is Clue. I also like how he nonchalantly moved his family into a home where people were, like, brutally murdered. And didn't tell them. And didn't (laughs) tell them. And then when he's confronted with it, he's like, um... He didn't even tell his wife. He's like, yeah, no, no. Fuck this. And then, and then he looks at her and is like, "Bitch, why did you think we got such a good fucking price on this? <laughs> yeah. Like, you should girl, have known, girl. Like, communicate with your wife, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> communicate with your fucking spouse. That's all I ask. I have a follow up question for that. Once Rowan's done telling, I'm done. <laughs> that's it. That's it. What's oh, that's him. Anything with him? Yep. Would you guys ever live in a house where someone was murdered? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my god! You guys are crazy. hundred and ten percent. I can't think of a better place to live than some somewhere where someone was murdered. Oh, yeah. Oh. I, like, 100% wouldn't. Whenever you're <laughs> feeling lonely, you can be like, there is a fucking person here who's, like, chained to this location for the rest of their afterlife. And they just have to watch me sleep and watch TV and, like, shower and poop, so... <laughs> why not until they try to f- they might try to fuck with you though i don't care that's what freaks me out they have to watch me masturbate they can pay so who cares <laughs> i guess like you know like we said there's so much to talk about this film i think it's important to like point out to uh and we said it briefly earlier on but like this is probably the most hated sequel of this franchise it's not, like, reviewed very well. When it came out, it definitely wasn't, uh, you know, a critical darling, kind of like the first one. And I just think it's very interesting that this is, like, a true example of, like, a cult film. Because it's just, over the years, like we said, like, as it's looked at with these different lenses. And now, I mean, you know, we were looking at, you know, when we look at the Screen Queen documentary and even, like, the special features just on the Blu-ray for it, they talk about that the film is like now looked at as like one of the top perfect examples of like queer film to look at and study in university. And and like, it's such, it's exactly what you want when you're like studying queer film. It's like this And weirdly, it's like, of course... Because this is the 80s, it's like queer film made by mostly straight filmmakers. Like That the, claim they right? don't know. Yeah, I mean, listen, like, I don't think anybody that wrote this movie could be heterosexual, but that's just me. <laughs> During the documentary, it was really weird because he, like, the guy, Carol Baskin or whatever the fuck. Carol Baskin. <laughs> Dave Maskin. how dare you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's his name. Carol Baskin out of this. <laughs> he, like, tries to, like, eventually defend himself by saying, oh, he, like, meant it to be homophobic instead of homoerotic. And I'm just like... <sighs> 
Yeah, how is really, that like a good defense? Yeah, I was gonna say, really, he outed himself by accident. Yeah, but also, yeah. I'm like, I feel like you did mean it to be homophobic because I'm like, girl, there is no way a fucking straight person wrote this movie. I'm just throwing that out there. Roast me alive. I don't give a shit. There is no That's probably way why he was a fucking straight person wrote this movie. That's obviously why he tried to like project. And I get that, yes, like, Mark, Mark Patton, Patton brought a lot of, like, kind of, like, queer energy to this movie. And he did. But they, obviously he carries it. They also hired him, so they knew, like, what he, what his personality was like. Yes, you know what I'm exactly. saying? Exactly. Exactly. Now, I will say, in everything I've seen, like, Never Sleeps Again documentary, like, all this kind of stuff, the only person I do believe somewhat is... Jack Shoulder. That guy's an asshole. And that's only because, A, he's an asshole, and he really does, like, he talks many times, and anything he, any documentary he talks about, like, he doesn't overly like horror movies. He doesn't care. I mean, he kind of talks about in the documentary Scream Queen and the bonus features, like, he basically talks about, like, they gave me this script, and I'm like, alright, cool, like, this'll get my name out as a director. Yeah, he was and... very much, like, kind of a director for hire, and was just sort of, like, looking at his watch and ticking down the minutes until he can move on to his next project. You know, I think there's a lot of hate for directors like that, and to me, it's like... Meanwhile, he, he, he may have been doing that. He was quite good at doing that, and it sucks yeah. to say that, but, like, he turned out a couple of pretty good movies, even though, dis- despite you know, having a disdain for the genre. Exactly. And I'm all for, like, get your money, girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just Listen, do it. Just do your job. Do your job. Do your I job. I just like how Mark Patton clearly had, like, some, like, trauma around this movie. And he's like, mm, don't you think it's time to just, like, get over well, let's it? let's not talk about the documentary yet. <laughs> oh, are we separating yes, them? Yes, we are separating Okay, we're not weaving, weaving them together. Not weaving them. I mean, we can, but weave. It's, we can weave a tail. It's a good thing that you brought up Mark Patton. Because I think if there's if there's anything we should spend our energy and time to me when we talk about this as like queer cinema and iconic and all that, I think like one of the most important aspects of this film and the most interesting thing to talk about is the it, the inverse effect that they used of casting Mark Patton as a final girl, knowing he was the final girl. And say, no, we're going to do it as this guy. Because the only, uh, you know, I really thought about this uh, today and yesterday. We did review another film that did the exact same thing, if you guys recall. Which is Evil Dead. Evil Dead. I knew you were going to fucking say Evil Dead. Evil Dead did this. But they're two totally different, like. Two totally different things. Also, Evil Dead was what? three or four years before this, so... Yeah. The, the Wasn't Evil Dead in the 70s? No. Oh, 1981 or something. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna say, so it was like, Evil Dead was before the sort of like horror, but specifically slasher formula had been firmly established. By the time Freddy's yes. Revenge came around, it was like, you had so many fucking mainstream horror movies, you had so many fucking knockoff, independent, like, straight-to-fucking-video shit that it wasn't even funny. So, like, by the time Freddy's Revenge came around, the genre tropes were firmly in place. Like, girl, exactly. when Evil Dead came yeah. out, they were not in place. That was sort of like, it was still up in the air, it was kind of like, 
You know what I mean? But, like, when Frey's Revenge came out, those tropes were there. They were set in fucking stone. And, I mean, like we talked about it with Evil Dead, like, even though they knew, like, oh, Ash is the final girl, they all they really did was take a final girl role and make it, like, as masculine and, like, this, like, masculine comedy aspect as much as possible. Where, like, this is kind of... This is really the first time we see, like, a male playing, like this written feminine role. Well, they, like, I'm sorry that I'm bringing it back to uh, other things we watched about this, but they did talk about how it's not just the fact that he was, like, the final, like, there were more aspects to it. Like, they talked about how the final girl is normally, like, starts off with, like, being weak and then gains, like, masculinity or, like, increases their masculinity to become strong and then they survive and it's the end. Oh, yeah, it's so, very much like, but it's all goes back to Carol Clover's final girl theory, right? Which is that the, um, the final girl is the one female in the film that, like, kind of, like, uh, appropriates the power of the phallus, right? So she appropriates that masculine, which is why she's usually virginal. She hasn't, like, given it up, which is why she's sort of masculinized. She doesn't, like, dress, like, slutty like some of the other girls do and shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't think Ash from Evil Dead would fit in that box at all. No, I was just saying that it was kind of like a predecessor. In yeah, terms in terms of males of in the final the girl. Last. Jesse was definitely, like, the completion of that, where I'm like, you know, Jesse looks proper. Jesse's not dressed like a slut. Oh my god. Don't slut shame uh, Jesse. A girl right. also, else. he wears some real tight jeans. And yes, he, wears he, does, some, it, he wears some real white tighty whities <laughs> I like how he's, like, wearing, was that him that wore the jock strap or whatever? Oh yeah. And then I was like, is that how people wear them? They don't wear underwear? Like, I have no idea about sports, so, and I'm not a guy, so I don't know. I didn't play any sports, um, you needed a jock strap, so I, mean, I have no idea. I was idea. gonna say, I think we all, I think all of our only experience with jock straps is not on sports i think it's all like re- recreational jocks please please go on mike what, what's your experience here also jesse really rocking the hawaiian print shirts like hard i will say I'm loving they, every minute of put it out a um jesse button-up shirt like if fright rags did a jesse collection of shirts I would literally buy every fucking one of them. Every one of them. Because I think that his entire wardrobe in this, and not just him, everybody, Lisa's wardrobe is iconic. I'd buy some Lisa's shirts, man. Like that shirt when she was in the cabana getting her fucking like uh, motorboat shit on. Like, I'd buy a shirt, bitch. Like, you got some fucking, there's some fucking good fashion in this movie. I'm just saying. Fun fact, uh, me and Exilia were, I was looking up Jesse's outfit in the iconic dance scene. And there's actually a tribute to that in It Chapter 2, the, like, the newer film, Richie actually wears the same print shirt. It Chapter 2, starring Rowan Fraser. It's true, I am a star. By the way, he's, he may be a very humble star, but he is in that movie, so check out It Chapter 2, and you will see our humble, usual host, Rowan, in all of his fucking magnificent widescreen glory. This is very true. 
Now, I did want to talk a little bit more about the final girl stuff and uh, maybe are we in agreement that Jesse voted most iconic Scream Queen Scream? Like, his scream is spectacular. Um, I, I, when you I'm watch sorry, ladies, documentaries you about horror like movies, that. yeah, when you watch documentaries about horror movies and, you know, they have the Scream Queens of yesteryear doing their screams now, and it's like, Girl, you were okay. And I really truly think like like probably three of the moments I remember most from this movie are his screams of hysteria. And it's so Freudian. It's this Freudian like fucking guttural scream of hysteria. It's this like recognition of this like fucking other that is literally trying to fucking push itself out of his subconscious and out of his body into the world. And it's this fucking guttural, like, repressive scream of hysteria that is just like, I don't know, man. Like, I really truly feel like Freddy was trying to fight out of his body because I don't know how he did those screams. But I think truly, like, this is if you're going Scream Queen 101, watch this movie. Watch this movie. This is how you fucking scream, bitches. This is how you scream. It takes a fucking gay man to know. You go Mark Patton. We love Mark Patton. We love him. It's true. It's it's so true. And I do want to talk about, uh, you know, we don't always talk about positive. Like, I do want to talk about things that don't overly work with the film. If you do a lot of research in this film, everyone kind of knows, like, Wes Craven was not a big fan of this. Just simply because they kind of threw the rules of Freddy out the window. Uh, they brought him into the real world, which was, you know, never meant for Freddy to be able to do. Oh, yeah, that was really like a device at the very end of the first one to kill him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and Wes, you know, R.I.P. Wes Craven, but he many times said that he never wanted it to be a franchise and he never envisioned it being a franchise. It was just kind of a one-and-done story. But yeah, I feel like he really did have the biggest point. Because like I said, it is, you know, whether it has to do with the queer themes, it still is like the worst reviewed and rated film of the series. And there is things that don't work in it. Like, I do agree that Freddy in the real world, like, isn't that scary? He He's kind of like all the other slashers. Like, the dream stuff is really what makes him unique and makes it scary because anything's possible. Okay. Where, like, yeah. when, when he's brought in the real world, it's like, I can slash people with these finger knives, and that's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah, like, 100% agree with you. Absolutely. And I feel like that's why maybe a lot of people, fans and critics alike, kind of panned it. But, and here's kind of my take on it. So, one thing that we will notice whenever, and you know what I mean? And, and <laughs> I will say, there's a reason why you listed Robert Englund so far down in our list of, like, people in this movie. Because Freddy is really not the main character of this movie. Freddy is, like, literally in maybe, like, 20% of this movie. They talk yeah, about yeah. him a lot, but he's not actually present. Because, again, Freddy is more like an element of Jesse's subconscious. So, my 
kind of challenge is this. Have we noticed how in this entire movie, Freddy appears very... How do I put this without seeming... Okay, so, like, even physically, he's wet. Like, Freddy seems very wet and dewy every time we see him. And I know that it's partially because Nancy destroyed him at the end of part one, so he's, like, being reborn, obviously, and he's trying to, like, um kind of like recalculate himself and reintegrate himself into like the dream world and then reality. Again, I feel like the writer of this either is a genius or a moron. (laughs) Um, I can't tell which. (laughs) There's a fine line. There's a very fine line. And I feel like this guy had his fucking nine toes all over the content place. So I feel like Freddy is... Like, literally, I feel like this is an aesthetic decision. And again, Jack Shoulder, God love him. He is actually, like I feel like I said, I've seen a few of his movies. And I think he's actually quite talented at, like, the kind of slasher horror genre, even if he doesn't want to be. But I feel like he was just activating his, like, his id. It was just this totally subconscious thing. And he was working with the script. And it was this Freudian... I feel like this whole fucking, like, Nightmare on Elm Street 1 to 3 is a Freudian nightmare. So... Freddy is this, like, dripping wet, kind of, like, sopping, dewy... He's being reborn. Yes, he's being reborn because Nancy, like, um, banished him and figured out his weakness. But he's also being reborn because it's, like, the dewy kind of, like, birth of Jesse's, like, queer sexuality, obviously. So, like, as Freddy's emerging, it's, you know, when Jesse's kind of, like, at this kind of, like, crossroads hormonally and socially because he's moved and going to a new school, and there's this girl who's clearly into him who he's, frankly, clearly not into. (laughs) And I feel like the fact that they, like, physically, everybody that worked on this movie, the fucking makeup on him, like, he's... Freddy is dripping. He's so wet. Like, he's literally being born, and he's this, like, dewy new thing. He doesn't have his fucking glove anymore. The knives are coming out of his finger, and they're very... They're sharp, but they're weak. You know what I mean? And I feel like this whole, like, aesthetic of Freddy being, like, a newborn baby. Freddy is this, like... Like I said, it's like this fucking queer sexuality being born. Freddy's being born anew, except instead of, like, being this, like, murderous child molester, he's this fucking, like, 17-year-old's repressed desire. And I just think that is such a fucking brilliant aesthetic move. I think it's so brilliant. I, like, cannot correct. I feel like, how did everybody in this movie, because, like, the fucking makeup department and everything, how did they not get this? Like, you're doing this dewy, dripping, like, fucking gooey, moist Freddy. How do you not get that? How do you not understand why you're doing this? Like, if this wasn't a conscious decision and everybody's just in denial, then it's the most sickening, mass hysterical, Freudian undertaking that has ever happened in any movie that has ever been filmed. Because everybody that has been part of this movie, from the writing, the casting, the directing, the acting, the makeup, the special effects, everything. It's like, this is coded as Freddy coming out as this, like, newly queer entity, like, trying to come out in the world, but, like, everybody's pushing him down. Jesse is pushing him down. Fucking, you know, Lisa's pushing him down. The parents are pushing him down. Everybody's pushing him down. But he's this, like, dewy, like, he's just covered in, like, goo. 
and fucking, you know, like, sweat. And he's just trying to, like, emerge from the... He's trying to come out of the fucking boiler room furnace. No, I, I agree with that. And I think, too, it's interesting because I think after this that... You know, as you talk about, like, Freddy being reborn and, like, it being part of Jesse's, like, queer identity. I think Freddy carries a lot of that in the other movies with him. Freddy is, is like, very much more a personality as we continue on in the franchise. But Freddy's always kind of plain. I'm trying to think of a good comparison, and I kind of think... I think about, like, in the comic book world, the comparison of, like, Deadpool. Like, where Deadpool is, like, a bisexual character that, like, fluidly plays with, like, men and women and and just kind of has this jokey aspect of, like, you don't know my sexuality and it doesn't really matter. And to me, like, Freddy is that. Where he taunt, like, he can be sexual with men, he can be sexual with women, and we don't see that till after this film. Well, Robert England says that he, like, intentionally did that, especially in that scene where they're, like, remember he's, like, caressing Jesse. Oh, yeah, and he put the, he put, he was, like, wanted to put the knife in his mouth. And the makeup artist was like, don't let him put that finger in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. But it's so true. It's so true. It's actually, like, kind of frightening because, like, I love that you brought that up, bro. Because, like, when you think about it in the subsequent sequels, not all of them, but, like, especially the two following this, which, as I'm sure our listeners slash the three of us will agree, I mean, Narmana 3 and 4 were, like, two of the best sequels. Like, I feel like we love those sequels, but I feel like the power of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors and Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master is that Freddy really plays with, and I feel like this is a callback to part two, even if the writers and directors didn't want to admit it, Freddy really plays with and toys with people's identities. Like, think of Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors is all about, like, my identity. Oh, yeah. Right? And yeah. and, and Nightmare on Street 4 is about identity in a very different way in that Alice is this, like, you know, kind of homely girl who has no personality of her own and as her friends perish, she kind of, like, you know, she absorbs their personalities, but, like, She's the girl who, she's like a mirror. She sort of like reflects and absorbs other people's um, strengths. Yeah. And I feel like, like in a way, three and four are also very queer in that Freddy forces people to kind of like confront their identities. Right? Yeah. And that their identities are very fluid and based on like people around them and like their desires and their hatred. And so I think that like you're, you know, you, you are kind of astute in your observation. Like, I feel like you've kind of pointed out in a way that Freddy is like the ultimate queer icon. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I was thinking too, like things, you know, and I'm sure it, when we do get to the other ones we'll talk about, but I think, like, like with Dream Warriors, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but, like, the guy that's, like, doesn't talk, he's, like, mute. Joey, Joey. Yeah, Joey, and his whole scene where, like, he's, like, dreaming of, like, the, the, like, sexy playboy. Oh, the titty nurse, yeah. Yeah, like, the big titty nurse, but, like, when you really think about it, like, that is Freddy having sex with him. 
Oh, absolutely, like she, yeah. She is Freddy. Like, Freddy's tongues come flying out of her mouth, right? Like, she is just a vehicle for Freddy. Yeah, Like, the so. big titty nurse is a vehicle for the Freddy tongues to come flying out. And it's because Freddy, yeah. like, plays these roles, and he's like, I can be whatever fuck you fucking want, baby. I can be your Freddy. I can be your fucking boy next door. I can be your big titty nurse. I'm whatever you want, and then I'm what I am, and you're gonna have to fucking deal with the consequences. I feel like somewhere in here we have a tagline for the episode like big titty nurse with freddy's tongue big titty nurse with freddy's tongue flying out and uh freddy's scratching his fucking message into this boy's chest i think let's get to is it scary because i know i definitely want to jump in uh and talk about the documentary after because i think we'll touch on some more of this stuff uh but let's answer the question is it scary exilia i would say no (laughs) I feel like it's always a no from Exilia. I don't really find movies scary. Okay, so from now on, anybody who is ever listening, Exilia's answer is always going to be no. (laughs) So just fast forward past the next two minutes of any episode. Oh, thanks. Yeah, hit the like 15 second button. Tap that that two or three times and you will just (laughs) skip past Exilia's lukewarm explanation of why it's not scary. (laughs) It'll only be no, so you'll definitely miss some stuff after I say it. <laughs> uh, no. We are Canadian, so it's English and French. No and no. No. How about you, Mike? I mean, okay, is it scary? Sort of like on the basis if you just like divorced it from the sociocultural context. It's actually still, it has its creepy moments. Like like I said, my favorite scene, the, the Grady bedroom scene. I think that's actually, it's very viscerally done. And I think that does have really kind of scary elements to it. In general, not really. But also, again, then when you're sort of taking it, when you're looking at it in more of like, kind of like a hindsight lens and looking at it from more of a like academic slash look film studies perspective it is kind of scary because you look at this and it was the mid 80s and again i don't want to like get into the documentary too much but like when you think about that this is kind of like when um like aids and hiv is kind of like hitting its crisis and really starting to like claim a lot of lives that were like very public and it outed people that did not want to be outed as like queer it's horrific in that way because you kind of look at it as an artifact of the time and it was like this sort of like subconscious manifestation of AIDS culture and I know they don't probably don't want it to be that way and especially like when you look at like Mark Patton and his like personal life but like 19 what was this 1985 like you have to look at it through that lens like if this is a queer movie in 1985 and you look at freddy like he's not a killer like he's a virus he has infected this person and you know like it's horrific in that i think it's honestly a very scary movie and like if you look at it as an aids hiv allegory it's a terrifying movie i mean if you're looking at it if you're just kind of like looking at it in a general you know, kind of like a naive way and you're not looking at the subtext. Yeah, exactly. Stop being so naive. I'm not, I'm not reading X at all. I would never read X. <laughs> yeah, okay. I look, I said, if I'm looking at it as a straight up horror movie, you know, it has its moments. There are a few moments that are actually really well done and kind of scary. It's not scary like as a straight up horror movie, but if I'm looking at this as, as I now do, and I can't not view this movie ever this way as a like queer HIV allegory in that lens is 
absolutely frightening. Because I and again, it because the end of the movie shows it's like the only way out of this nightmare is like for you to bust out, like scrape off this fucking you know, crusty burn uh, shell of Freddy and accept this girl who clearly knows that you're not into her as a love interest. You know what I mean? And it's kind of yeah. like, okay, so time to like shed the societally inappropriate desires and get back to, you know, the suburbs your and have your heteronormative, life. you know, your suburban 2.5 kids. So I think, I think in that regard, it's actually horrific. Um, argue with me, please. Like anybody, like I, no, I mean, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. Uh, I definitely, when I look at this question, look at it on a kind of layman term. So I, I said no, simply on the fact I think, like, the first one was pretty effective in, like, being... Oh, it's a straight-up horror, horror movie. movie. Yeah, the first movie was... First like, one, Freddy's scary. I think the sequels, even though some of them are silly, play with concepts that can kind of freak you out or gross you out, that kind of stuff. This was probably the less scary horror movie. But like you said, there's lots of subtext there that is super scary uh if you really think want to sit down and think about it uh, are you guys comfortable in getting into the rating oh my god yes absolutely yeah. uh we'll start with exilia exilia what I'm, would you rate it um i'm actually gonna rate this one a, a yay all right like i said at the beginning this one and and dream warriors are pretty much the only ones i like remember besides the first i mean i think everybody remembers the first one yeah i mean it's the holy trinity the first I, yeah yeah. And, and I think, I don't know, I like this one the best. It's different. I don't, I'm not like a crazy Nightmare on Elm Street fan like Rowan, like Mike. So I don't really care about, yeah, I don't but, really okay, care I'm about it say, fitting into. Can I just say the fact that you said you're like more of a casual fan and that you just throughout this, I think is my favorite. That yeah. shows that 30 years down the line or 20 odd years down the line, the fact, the power that this has, and it's such an interesting movie, right? Yeah. I look at it, I look at more of like a standalone movie rather than like oh, yeah. how it fit, I, fits within the series. I was watching, when I was rewatching this movie, I thought, and I don't know the details, obviously of the writing of this movie, but I thought that if you kind of trimmed away about 15 minutes of this movie um, that had to do with Freddy and just substituted and you added in another probably 20 or 25 minutes to make it a little over, like maybe like approaching two hours. Um, If you had added like probably 10 or 15 pages to the screenplay, I feel like maybe it could have even been written as like a standalone movie about a demon that possesses this like queer teenage boy. Yeah, right? I think so too. And you could have yeah. trimmed all of the... Nightmare on Elm Streetness away from it, which frankly, like I said, Freddy's not even in it that much. <laughs> and and yeah. really, yeah. there's like, oh, look at Nancy's diary and stuff, but that's like literally about seven or eight minutes of this whole movie. Yeah, like you could have yeah. you could have rejigged about fifteen pages of the screenplay and just made it a standalone movie, which I think underlines your point that like it's a fine movie when you just view it as itself. Yeah, exactly. Not in comparison. Not in comparison to the other ones, yeah. Uh I'll go next. Uh I'm gonna give this a slay. Uh, this is like up there with my favorite horror movies of all time. I think when we did the introduction episode, this was like in my top five 
of my top 10 favorite movies. I can't remember. Do we do you top five? Your top five of your top 10. Like number, f- it was in the. So it was in your top five? <laughs> yeah, it was in my top five in that top 10 list. Okay. <laughs> it's my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film. I, I love it. I love every ounce of subtext in it. I love Jesse's dancing. I love that he's the screen queen. You know, Mark Patton does an amazing job. Uh, he is my ultimate screen queen. So, 100% slay. Uh, Mike, what do you give it? Oh, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked me because I have many thoughts on this, including several of which are personal anecdotes involving all of us involved in this podcast. I will give it a slate. I have always loved it. Again, I watched it when I was very young and did not understand the subtext. And I kind of like got the feeling, um, I kind of like caught the vibe that uh, most people did not like this as much as the other ones. And I understood why, because I was a huge like Scream Queen fan and I love Nancy. I love Heather Langenkamp. I love that all of the other movies kind of did a like sequential story that followed the same characters. And if it killed some of the characters off, it picked up with the other characters. So like to me, this is Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is the Halloween 3 of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, which is to say it's a a good, it's a break off from the narrative that you're used to, but it's also a really cool movie that stands on its own. You know what I mean? And again, Halloween 3, if you trimmed away certain things from it, could be its own movie. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 if you trimmed away the Nancy elements, could be its own movie. Yeah, 100%. So my point is this. I also love it not only because, you know, when I was growing up, I watched it and I loved it despite everybody else hating it. But part of the reason why I love it is because it was one of the movies that we all watched together when we were um, becoming horror friends. This (laughs) is true. we would have, you know, this is like irrelevant to anybody else, but... We would all get together and have um, screaming parties and we would get very drunk and order horrific amounts of pizza and disgusting like Chinese food and all that and smoke a lot of weed before it was legal in Canada. And we would watch our movies and just kind of like the it was kind of like the prelude to this podcast. Like we would sit around and scream at the TV and talk about for hours afterwards these movies. And so I, I like one of my favorite memories ever is us watching Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in your apartment and ordering a huge pizza and getting horrifically drunk. And uh, like... The point when... It was definitely Greco. Oh, it was Greco no, pizza. wasn't it Hobo's? No, it was Greco. Oh, it no. Was a, it was yeah, a Greco was party Greco. pizza, yes. Um, and then it would always get put on my desk, and then my desk yes. would be... Your, would your be desk like would be full. Your desk would be full of Greco party pizza grease for days afterwards. <laughs> anyway, and like, for example, we were sitting around on your, what, passed for a couch on those days. <laughs> We won't go there, but we were sitting on your quote-unquote couch watching Nightmare on Street 2 and having a real good time and just, again, riffing in the way that we are right now on, like, it's kind of queer themes and, like, how much we loved it. And we'd be watching, say, the scene when they go to Don's place, which is the gay bar, and um, that, like, really cool song was playing. <laughs> Yeah.
like literally I'd be on my phone and we were talking about how the that like sleazy song playing in the gay club was so cool. And like I found it on iTunes and like bought it on iTunes literally while we were watching the movie. And when I got on the bus at like midnight to go home, I was like drunk out of my mind and like full of pizza and listening to the song on iTunes because this was before Apple Music existed because we're ancient. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it'd just be like, we'd be like downloading the songs and like the Bobby O song, Whisper to a Scream when Lisa's having her party. You know, it's like, make up your fucking playlist. It's just, ah, uh, there's so many like good memories to this movie. It's such a personal thing to me. Like I watched it by myself and had these like reactions to it. But then when we all became friends and I feel like that's why Rowan loves this movie so much is that when we all started watching movies together, like, years before this podcast started, this was one of the ones that really cemented our, like, sitting around for hours and just talking about the, like, subtext and themes. It's, to me, that, like, the fact that it has these layers, even though, like, a lot of people just consider this, like, IMDb 5.5 out of 10, you know, shitty slasher sequel. Like, no, it has these layers, and it really brings people together, and it, like starts these discussions and like to me that's one of my like memories of us being friends and watching movies together and I feel like a lot of other and again okay I'm gonna like segue into the the Scream Queen documentary and it keeps showing these groups of like men and stuff saying like I loved like this movie was such a like huge part growing up and we watched it and we were like in love with Mark Patton and like blah blah we had crushes on x y and z and I just feel like this movie has, like, this communal power to, like, bring people together that no other Nightmare on Elm Street movie does. It divides people, yes. I'm frankly gonna say it divides boring straight people, yes. But does it bring together a lot of, like, marginalized groups? Fuck, yes. And I think that is the power of this movie, and it's a fucking slate. Yas queen. Mm -hmm. Scream queen, scream queen. So before we talk about the documentary, we need to do the budget game quickly. What do you think this costs to make? Exilia. $8.3 million. 8.3 mil. I'm going to go $11 million. All right, Exilia's going to take it. Girl, it you always take it. You always take it. You fucking... Budget Not queen. Always. You fucking capitalist pig. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You are a capitalist queen. We love you. Boo. This costs three million dollars to make. Oh. So what? very what? limited what? budget. I thought they would have given them way more money. The original one definitely had more of a three more than a three million budget. What? I can't uh, I can't, I can't remember. remember. I know, well, it's been I'd so long to... since we did part one. I don't remember anything. Yeah, I know. I'd have to, Actually, I'd you have know to what? go now back and look. Part one, I think the budget was less than two million. I think it was like a million and a half. Let's talk about what it made. What do you think it made, Mike? Um, like 12 million bucks. 12 mil. Exilia. Um, like 7 million. All right, Mike, you're going to take uh, this. For once. It, it made $30 million. 30 million bucks. Suck on it, Exilia. We definitely have <laughs> to remember, like... It. Neither of us were that close. <laughs> yeah, they but I was this... closer than you, so... <laughs> <laughs> they put this out, and this basically cemented it that they were going to, like, make it a franchise, because it made money. Oh, well, I mean, the, like, profit margin was sick. It was sickening. <laughs> Sickening. Very, party. very successful. Well, I shouldn't say very, very successful, but successful Money. enough to... Wise. 
let them make other movies. But I mean, considering this was, you know, a fairly new independent production company, the fact that they spent such a little amount on these movies and got such a return, like, obviously, that's gonna... I feel like that was, like, the biggest margin, probably, of any movie. (laughs) Oh, for sure, yeah. So I would say that's, like successful in terms that of money. That is super yeah. successful, yeah. And especially for, like, a slasher film. Like, you never make expect to make crazy amount of money on them. If you make your money back, you're usually pretty happy. Uh, so, this is a part of the podcast. I think this is an appropriate time. We did briefly, as we talked about the subtext and stuff, uh, talk about the documentary. I just wanted to, you know, kind of shout it out. So, it's available on Shudder. Uh, you can buy it on, like, Apple and stuff as well. Uh, it's called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. It's uh, the documentary Mark Patton put together uh, basically about his experience filming this because uh, if you... We, I don't think we overly touched it uh, beforehand in this episode, but basically after this movie, Mark Patton disappeared for 30 years that this... The whole, um, after this movie came out and, uh, we talked about, like, the AIDS, uh, epidemic and this kind of outing him as a gay man, uh, because he wasn't out when this movie was filmed and released, just kind of destroyed, destroyed him and he just kind of took off from Hollywood and didn't want to deal with it. So he made this documentary to, you know, kind of, I think, deal with that baggage he carries uh, from the documentary. And I'd love you guys, maybe just talk about that, or, like, did you like the documentary? Did you think it was... I feel like his feelings were valid. He, like, obviously held a huge grudge against Carol Baskin. I can never remember the guy's name. David Chaskin. David Chaskin. Carol Baskin. David Chaskin. David Chaskin, the horror games Carol Baskin. <laughs> I just like obviously that was like a traumatic experience, and then the the guy like pretty much gaslit him, and then like projected the queerness of the characters in the script onto like Mark Patton's the acting. actor instead of his script. Exactly, and yeah. he like, and then once it became like fashionable or trendy or whatever he was like oh yeah like i did mean it blah 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 like i don't know yeah like that's super shitty there was yeah i know and that that was the thing and like i get how somebody watching it could sort of like look at it and go that mark Patton was overly kind of like antagonistic and very defensive and he was obviously But also, I feel like, yeah, they did gaslight him. And it was, he did wait until it was a trendy thing to go, yeah, so you know what? I meant X, Y, and Z. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but you know what? You kind of have to accept responsibility. Yeah. Over the years of when you, when you are giving interviews and like making statements to go, like you can't just kind of like deny it and put it on somebody else and then go, oh yeah, when in the 90s, when it was like, really unfashionable to say it was a queer movie because AIDS was like literally killing everybody you know (laughs) like I just don't want to admit that this is how I wrote the movie and then like 
15 years later when it's in fashion to go, oh, yeah, I totally meant all of that. Yeah. You know, like... And exactly... Yeah. Mark Patton moved away to Mexico, and you know what? I don't fucking blame him. I don't blame him. (laughs) Yeah, he, like... It was basically, like... And especially somebody like Mark Patton who was living with HIV. Yeah. Which is, like, a horrific, horrific, traumatizing thing to have to live with. Especially in, like, the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, and, like... So the writer, he, when it was unpopular, he wasn't, he like wouldn't take any responsibility for it. But then once people started talking about the film in a positive way and it became like a cult classic kind of thing, then he's like, oh yeah. And because the reason really it became a cult classic is because it's a queer horror film. So then he's like, oh yeah, like he's taking responsibility for it now, which is like horrific. And as Mike said, Mark Patton had a, or like has AIDS, his partner died of it and like it's actually heartbreaking like like that whole yeah like if you watch that documentary which everybody should i literally wept i could not believe i had no idea this happened to him and like the baggage that he has it's horrific and that's the thing and i think like a lot of there's a lot of trauma in his life that is related to like queerness and to like that and then also be like outed you know against your your will, essentially, especially at that time. Yeah, when AIDS was, all like, kind of, like, still, you know, when they still called it, yeah, stigmatized. It was, like, the gay cancer. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then, like, he's dealing with this, like, losing his partner. He has it. So he, like, for sure has, like, dealt with a lot of things in his life. On the other hand, I don't, there's something about him I don't like. And I don't know if it's, like, I feel like he has delusions of grandeur, but he, like, there's a line where he's like, oh, yeah, people tell me if they could meet me or Brad Pitt, they'd pick me. Like, yeah, I mean, that's probably true if you're, like, big into horror, like, in this movie. But I feel like he, like, talks himself up a bit more than, like, as a superstar than he was, if that makes sense. He was really that this yeah. was his role. And then after this role, he basically like moved to Mexico. And I know he did other things prior, but this is definitely like a yeah, this big is, thing. Yeah, this is what his whole it, career is think, based off of. I think part of it is that um, it's weird that they only spend like maybe a small portion of the movie delving into this. And I don't know a whole lot about this because I've never traveled for this, but like the kind of convention circuit is a huge, for especially horror people, is a huge, like that's where they make all their money. That's where they meet people. And I feel like that was kind of like the thing. This got him back into the like convention circuit and meeting people. Like you make money that way, but you also like really connect with people that way. And like it showed him how many like fucking 24 photos or whatever did it show of him like snapping like photos with people like doing the like pose and stuff and like they were just like so happy to like snap a picture with him you know what I mean and I feel like the convention circuit embraces really minor celebrities and like people who would normally kind of like be working at a grocery store or whatever and I'm not saying that in a judgmental like way because I'm a retail worker but like you know what I mean like I feel like it's just it's sort of highlighted the like um sort of um importance of cult celebrity to the convention circuit and like fandom fandom loves cult celebrities yeah exactly he's like very niche and I don't know very niche he's a very niche celebrity yeah and I don't know if I would call that 
not a superstar in a conventional way. Oh, absolutely Like, not. you don't no, see no, 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 no. Brad Pitt, like, going to conventions kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he, but he, like, makes it up the whole documentary as he was, like, this huge movie star and da-da-da-da-da. Like, I don't know. I, so that part, I was just like... But, I mean, let's face it, they're making a documentary literally about him. So yeah, he is it, the Brad Pitt of that documentary. Let's face of it, that we might not I mean, agree that- about it, but there's somebody who took enough time out of their lives to, like, track him down to Mexico and go... Wasn't it him that made the documentary? Well, he made it, like, with people. Oh. No, but there were there were two there were two directors <laughs> yeah. to that movie. Yeah. They basically approached um, him. They approached him, which, exactly. I mean, which makes sense, because he's, like, a cult figure. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, I don't think that he, like, to project onto him that, like kind of like I know it seems like there were some um moments in that documentary where it did seem like you know like you said his delusions of grandeur and he's Brad Pitt and blah 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 but like he did not seek any of that out like this bitch moved to fucking Mexico and married this man and like opened his own business and it was not until they started, like, digging people out of the woodwork in the last 10 years to, like, do kind of, like, more obscure horror documentaries and stuff that, like, and, you know, I believe it. Like, I I truly look at that and I go, like, he was sort of, like, a minor league celebrity in terms of, like, cult horror shit, right? Well, when he talks about it, he talks about it in the past. Like, when he was young and he moved to LA, he was seeking out stardom. And that's when he, like, references being a um, huge movie star is, like, when he talks about that time. Like, when he oh, talks yeah. when about he's back like, then. Oh, yeah, when he's like, I was with Cher and Karen Black and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, like, this advice Cher gave me. And, like, he literally calls himself a big movie star, like, several times. And then, um, yeah, and then, like, things got too much for him, and he was, like, harassed, which is shitty and super terrible. And then he went, like, low-key, and then, I guess, I mean, after 30 years of doing introspective work, he, like, decided that he was gonna use his experience for something good. I think even, like, as we're talking about it like because i said i watched it and i was like oh like i could kind of see how he could rub off the wrong way in it like to some people but i did think it was like the more i think about it i think the duality of it's very interesting where he he very much so was on this trajectory of he was gonna be a big star all this kind of thing and then i almost like totally understand the attitude, even though he does great things now, like, he seems very down to earth now with, like, the fundraising and the awareness stuff he does. But at the same time, just shooting the documentary, I can imagine, brings up so much stuff where literally not just an entire industry, but, like, an entire society, like, fucked this guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, like, literally destroyed his life and I can only imagine because it's not like you know it was his life of being a manager of Walmart like this guy was gonna be like a big TV or a movie star or like he was poised on the edge he really was like yeah it's like he knows he's on the cusp of this he he very well could have if he hadn't take this role been like a like big TV star or something he could have been on Dallas for 10 years and you know yeah exactly and it's like but instead because of such 
an intolerant society at the time. He's then forced, like, in Mexico. So then, as I looked at it, I, you know, I just kind of, I guess I salute him on it, because I'm like, give your attitude, girl. Like, <laughs> go ahead. Like, fuck everybody, because it's like, you royally got screwed. And I mean, especially, I think, we think about all the other, even not, you know, I'm not talking like Johnny Depp or any, but like, but all the other, like, final girls that have been in Nightmare on Elm Street, like, this has, if they don't have fantastic careers, they were able to use this their entire career to their advantage at any period of time where he wasn't able to use that. Like, I this mean, was a shame now. on him. He can now. Yeah. But everyone else, all the traditional screen queens in the 80s and 90s are using this. But maybe his career would have died out if he hadn't have had that story behind him. And it very, and that's one of the things, right? You never know, right? I think he has a very healthy attitude towards the whole thing, especially after he talks to David, whatever the fuck his Carol name is. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. David Baskin. Yeah. David Baskin. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he has like a very healthy perspective and he's when he was talking at the very end about how, oh, maybe I, you know, was meant to go to Mexico because I wouldn't be able to handle yeah. all these and things don't get me in wrong. the public I think eye. that Carol Baskin was a piece <laughs> of shit. And I do... Oh, like, he had like, such a schmarmy look on his oh, face. While I, while I agree that, like, Mark Patton was more defensive than he probably should have been. And, like... But again, it was editing. Like, they edited it so that it looked like literally his entire life was, like, pointing towards confronting David Chaskin. Yeah. I said to Rowan, I, 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 I understand is his friend. I understand that's editing, but it's like, I also do feel like that this guy did, this writer was, I truly think he was a coward. And um, he yeah, hundred percent acceptable for him to do that. And I truly do think that he like is kind of a piece of shit. And I feel like yeah, there's oh, a reason 100%. why he hasn't worked in twenty five or thirty years. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And don't get me wrong. Did you write one of my favorite fucking horror movies of all time? Yes. <laughs> but did you fucking cop out? Yes. And did you work after that? No. So go fuck yourself, Carol Baskin. <laughs> exactly, and. I also want to bring up about the documentary, as much as he didn't care about any of this stuff, and, you know, he was the, uh, the super straight guy, I do want to say that, uh, Jack Shoulders' scarf game was fabulous oh, and on of course, point. Yeah. The entire documentary, he was rocking those scarves heavy, while everyone else was, like, in t-shirts, he was just wearing full-blown winter scarves. And I was living for it. Is this, I think, I, I have nothing else I want to talk about with, I think we kind of covered the documentary a lot in the review of the movie. Yeah. And like we yeah. said, I think just go watch it and let us know what you think it's about it. It's honestly worth a watch, whether you agree with it or not. It's, um, it's a really good glimpse. I feel like a lot of, um, it's not really something you see in the horror community, like, I feel like they're, like, if you're really into kind of, like, classic uh, Hollywood cinema from, like, the 60s onwards that, and, like, you're really heavily into it and, like, the kind of gossipy angles of it that you do kind of understand, like, Rock Hudson of it all and the kind of, like, um, the Hayes Code and the coding of it all and the fact that, like, you couldn't 
you know, be openly queer in any way, like male or female. But like, I feel like it's really worth watching the documentary because even in the 80s, like, like I said, you're looking at this in terms of like, okay, so like decades before you were just looking at you had to code all the like queer desire and stuff. But in the 80s, you really had to fucking hide it because by the late 80s, you were looking at like kind of like the height of like HIV AIDS and you could not be openly queer in any way or like trans. And it was just a fucking shit show to live in. Uh, Well, if that is everything, uh, we do have to get to shameless promotions because just like Mark Patton, we we got bills to pay. So we need uh, you guys to listen to us for a second. Want to start off? If you enjoy what you hear and you don't necessarily want to financially support, you can support us by going to Apple, giving us a star review, and hopefully a text review so we can read it on the podcast. It helps us get seen. It moves us up when people look for horror podcasts. We become more seen in the searches. Uh, Even make if sure the to check out. You is go fuck yourselves. <laughs> That's right. Go to Spotify. Uh, it slays podcast horrific playlist. We will we be putting on the song movies. from uh, the Don's Place Gay Club, uh, which is one of me and Rowan's favorite things that I bought on iTunes. Uh, the Reds Terror in My Heart. We will be putting that on the playlist. We will make Exilia put that on the playlist. Uh, yeah, check it out. Give it a follow. We're always updating it. Uh, make sure to follow us on all our social media. It slays podcasts everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, uh, wherever, we're there. And then our Patreon. Uh, if you do want to support the show, check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash itslayspodcast. Uh, there's a bunch of tiers you can sign up for. You get cool things from shoutouts, thank you cards, the t-shirts, Uh, Lots of cool stuff on there. And before we uh, say see you later, we will announce our next film we're reviewing. So we are back. uh, We're done our Pride Month. This was our last episode. We do want to say, like, thank you for your support with all our Pride episodes. This is, like, one of our favorite times of the year because we love talking about and yep. celebrating and also LGBTQ you, plus films. If you don't support it, unfollow, block. We don't That's want right. you to listen to us anymore. Get out Just throwing here. that out. Like, if you don't support LGBTQ plus pride, just literally unsubscribe, block. Go Good riddance. We don't want years. you in our podcast yet. So yeah, just thank you for tuning in. We can't wait to uh, do it again next year. I'm excited to see what films we come up with to review. Uh, so the next film, it just kind of worked out. It's also my pick again because uh, we had these episodes picked out already before we picked our pride ones. Uh, the next episode, we are reviewing our first musical, which is Repo the Genetic Rock Opera. So tune in and uh, see what we have to talk about with uh, Paris Hilton and all of her greatness, as Cecily Herber would say. Oh my god, I love Cecily. I miss Cecily. Also, Sarah Brightman. Uh, and I think that's everything for now. Thank you for tuning in. Bye, it's Zilia. See you. It's your humble host, Rowan. It's a used gym sock, Mike. See you later.